This is our series, Desecrated, The Faces of Sin. In this series, we will examine the perverse and pervasive nature of sin as we explore specific Old Testament narratives. We will see the many faces of sin and not just view sin in a one-dimensional way, but see its multifaceted nature. Today's scripture reading is 1 Samuel 15, verses 12 through 23. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, then what is this sound of sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, although you once considered yourself unimportant, haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, we are continuing a sermon series during this season of Lent called Desecration. And if you were to walk into Home Depot with a flashlight and shine it in the lighting aisle, nobody would notice, not even you. But if you were to turn all the lights off and go in at night and do the same exact thing, you would notice an immense beam of light. And that's why during Lent, we focus on things like sin and death and desecration and darkness. Because it's all leading to this point where we're going to celebrate Easter soon. And we are going to be prepared to see the light in a way that stands out against the darkness, in a way that's going to inspire worship. So the theme we're focusing on today is the theme of self-deception. Now, when we think of sin, I think we typically have this image in our head. And this is very true. There's this, if you've lived long enough, you've had this experience a hundred times where you know there's something to do that's right, you know there's something you want to do that's wrong, and you're caught in the crosshairs. You're in this battle. Now that's what I will call movement one in the symphony of sin. But maybe what we focus a little less on is that after there's a fall, after there's giving into temptation, comes movement two, and it's just as much sin, and that is the self-deception movement. And that 
might best be depicted as an evil lawyer. Because Satan kind of works in conjunction with our flesh and our pride to convince us that what we did is not a big deal. It's not that bad. Everybody does this. Nobody needs to know. I can keep this hidden. And all those thoughts start racing around our head and many more. And that's the lawyer phase. That's the evil lawyer phase that comes right after the fall phase. So this is how Cornelius Plantinga puts it in his book, A Breviary of Sin. He says, perhaps we think most often of sin as a spoiler of creation. People adulterate a marriage or befoul a stream or use their excellent minds to devise an ingenious tax fraud. But resistance to redemption counts as sin too and often displays a special perversity. He's totally right, and this is, this is where we get into a whole host of activities. Hiding, blaming, minimizing, gaslighting, compartmentalizing, spinning, controlling the narrative, excusing, avoiding, justifying. You could just keep listing things, but that is movement two of sin, and that's what we're gonna unpack today. Just a couple more illustrations to make this, kind of to feel this. Uh, my dad grew up in Norridge, Illinois. Just, it's a suburb of Chicago. And one of the really freaky things about Norridge, Illinois, when my dad was growing up in the 50s and 60s, is there was a uh, psychopath, uh, a serial killer, who was just right a couple blocks from his house. Uh, John Wayne Gacy, if that name rings a bell. In the late 70s, he was, he was uh, on trial, and they discovered 33 bodies under the crawl space of his house. He had lured young boys in his house, sexual abuse, harassment, rape, strangulation, and then buried under his floorboards. Um, as heinous and as awful as that is, what's also just absolutely perverted is the second movement of sin. This, the, what took place during the 14, 15 years he was in prison waiting for the death penalty. And what happened was he asked for a ton of legal books and he wanted to study up to find any loopholes he could in the laws to get out of his conviction and to get out, uh, and to get out of jail. He showed zero remorse at any point during the trials, even up to the moment of his execution, he basically cursed people and, and, and zero apology. And that's what planning is talking about, that sometimes it's even more perverse, the second movement of sin. Now, we see this take place in politics all the time. A scandal breaks, and at first there's a, you know, a season of denial, straight denial, and then when more facts come out, the leaders will say something like this, mistakes were made, <laughs> right? Now, what is that? Is that how you explain an, an incredibly horrible uh, season of sin and scandal in your life, mistakes were made. A lapse of judgment took place, right? It's euphemism. It's that same, it belongs to that second movement. We see it in the workplace. How many of you love feedback in the workplace? You lo just love getting some critical feedback from a colleague or a boss, or, right? I mean, in our ideal world, right, we're humble enough to receive and to grow and to improve. But in the real world, oftentimes it stings and our defenses like a porcupine shoot out and we get angry and we get bitter and we think about that all night and all the next week and we get and we're full of self-defensiveness. 
Um, just lastly, just little things, even in marriage or in friendship, you have this happen all the time. My wife and I at this conference just recently, uh, we got back one night and we had said, all right, this night is kind of our night. We're just going to have some time together. We got back to this Airbnb, this sort of hotel thing, and I was like, well, we got to talk to the guy at, you know, who, to, just to arrange the plans for tomorrow for our departure. So we went and talked to him. He's a huge talker. So at first, we're like being polite, listening, but then I'm like starting to ask questions and engage him, be a good Christian and listen well. My wife starts doing one of these things, but she's doing it on my foot. And I didn't really notice. She's tapping me with her foot. Uh, 30 minutes go by, and then I'm like, well, maybe God wants us to share the gospel with this guy. So then we start, I start trying to look for like a bridge to get to the gospel. My wife is just silent the whole time. Um, anyways, an hour goes by. Nothing happens. It's just a bad experience. We go back up. The night's kind of over. We've missed the time that I had promised that we were going to spend together. Now, you can imagine my wife was pretty hurt by that. And um, as we start debriefing it, I turn into the most amazing defense lawyer of all time. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, we were being Christian. We were listening well. We were, we were trying to bridge. I was trying to bridge the gospel. You weren't saying anything. If you want to say something, just stop tapping my foot. Like, say something. Like, make it clear. I'm a guy. I don't get signals very well. I need click. And I realized I just went on for about 15 minutes defending myself. And I realized, oh, gosh, I'm doing exactly what I'm preaching against in like a week and a half. And that's why this topic's so slippery, because I know, and you know, we all deal with this. And it's hard to preach on this, because I know I'm still dealing with self-deception in my life, blind spots, areas of, of, of things I'm not aware of or things I am aware of that I still fall into. And so just to kind of level the playing field, we're all in this together today, okay? We're all in this together. We're going to look at the life of Saul. We're just one episode in the life of Saul to get a deep dive on how this works and then how we can escape it, all right? So let's, let's go through this story, incredible story in the life of Saul. Uh, you picked up some clues in the story from the backstory, but let me make it more clear. Saul uh, was first king of Israel, and he had kind of a good start, but some ups and downs, and he's had some more downs than ups at this point in the story. Well, God tells the prophet Samuel, go to Saul and tell Saul that he needs to wipe out the Amalekites, because the Amalekites did some horrible things to Israel, and this is God's divine retributive justice going to take place. Just like the flood of Noah, God says, I'm going to wipe out everybody, like man, woman, child, animals, everybody, for, for my judgment. Saul, you need to do it. Saul takes the orders, he goes, and he fights, and he, and he, and he wins. They have a great defeat of the Amalekites, but at the end... Saul spares the king and takes him with him, and then he spares the best animals for plunder. God speaks to Samuel in a dream. He says, Samuel, Saul has disobeyed my words. You go back to Saul and correct him. And that's where the story picks up today. That's where we're at. So let's look at verse 12, see what happens here. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. Now, this is funny because it was God who commanded Saul to do this. It was God who gave the victory. It was God who was punishing the Amalekites through Saul. 
But who's getting the monument? Saul. This is about Saul now and his great victory. And we see right from the beginning, see, the Hebrew stories often don't give you a ton of psychology. You don't always get into their heart. You get that in the Psalms. But in the narratives, often it's very brief. But this episode shows you something critical, that at the foundation of our self-deception is pride, right? It's the base of it all is a pride that we've got to protect image. We've got to build our ego. We've got to build our, uh, you know, make ourselves look good. And that's what Saul is in the process of doing when Samuel's about trying to find him to rebuke him. So finally he finds Saul, and let's see what happens in verse 13. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Now Saul's getting spiritual. Saul is extremely spiritual here. Samuel comes up and Saul runs right up. No shame, no embarrassment. Hey, brother, praise God. So good to see you. Peace be with you. God bless you. May the Lord bless you. And he starts speaking all spiritual. Zero indication that he's messed up. In fact, he says the opposite. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And for all we know, he thinks he's kind of believing himself. But Samuel obviously has been informed from the Lord that that's not true. Mm. Now, Samuel could just kind of take out a bat and thwap him right now with truth. But Samuel is a very loving prophet. And he uses a question to try to wake Saul up a little bit. Look at verse 14. What's the sound of the sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? (laughs) Very simple question. What's all the sheep and cattle? You carried out all the Lord's instruction, but why do I see all the animals here then? Now, it reminds me a lot of the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Adam and Eve sinned. They immediately hide, try to cover up, try to play it cool. And God comes looking for them with a question. Where are you? God knew the answer. He asked the question to surface it in their own heart. And that's what Samuel's doing here. What, what's, what's all the animals, King Saul? Well, how does Saul respond? He, he gets chance number two to redeem himself. But he's caught in movement, the second movement of sin. Look at verse 15. He starts pouring out some classic defense mechanisms here. Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. Now I see three great lawyer tricks here. Check this out. The first one, he's going to blame shift. Classic blame shifting. The troops did it. It's my troops that did this problem. It wasn't me. Well, who's the commander of the troops? King Saul. And in in case we didn't realize that, back in verse 9, it actually says explicitly, Saul and the troops spared the best animals. So the narrator has told us, and now this creates the irony. Saul's saying, no, the the troops did this, which is half true. And that's all the best defenses are half true. The troops did do this, but I did too. (laughs) The next thing we see is that they did it, Saul says, we did it to sacrifice to the Lord. He's going to spiritualize it. He's going to give some good reasons for it that are very spiritual. We did it for God. God would want me to do this. Sure, we cheated. We didn't pay our taxes, but we'll tithe the money we made. 
You see, we're going we're gonna to do this for God. It's so twisted, but we do this kind of thing, if you think about it. You can always kind of spiritualize what you're doing when you're disobeying the Lord. And then the last thing here, he minimizes the bad by focusing on his good. You notice the last thing he says? The rest we destroyed. Look, all we did was we saved like 5 10%. We, we destroyed the vast majority. We mostly obeyed. Been really, really good, mostly. But we do that too, don't we? We always, but, but, but I do this, I go to church, I do this, I've been this, I've been a good husband, I've been, I'm trying so hard at work. I'm All that turns the focus away from what we're not doing, right? From what we ought to be focused on. I was thinking this week about all the excuses we use, and the list is like hard to even, to share. I'm just going to share a few, but let it be suggestive, and I encourage you, as you think through your own life, what are your excuses? What are the things that, where you turn into a lawyer and try to defend yourself? These are just a few. You got the ends, justify the means. I was just trying to help the company succeed. You got the means, justify the ends. Look at all the good things I did all the way along. Yeah, the result wasn't very good, but I get all these good things in between. You got, my pain justifies it. You don't know how bad my marriage is. You don't know the the troubles I've seen. this, This is why I had to do this. You got, my trauma justifies it. I was just so triggered by this. It brought me back. I just exploded, but it's just, I got this stuff in my past. My family of origin justifies it. It's just how I grew up. You think that was bad, you should see how my dad would have done things. My culture justifies it. That's just how we do it in my culture. That's just part of my culture, and and you're just going to have to deal with it. My personality justifies it. It was just my unresourceful eight. (laughs) That's an Enneagram reference. Sorry if that's insider, but... Personality <laughs> tests, right? You, you learn about these things, and then suddenly that's the reason, and that's, that's kind of what's going on. My desire justifies it. I can't control the desires I have. You could take it a step further. God made me like this. God, is, is, he gave me these desires, and I have to let them go. I have, to, I have to act on them. Or even worse, God's grace justifies this. Mm. You know, there'll be grace for this. God, he, for, he, he has to forgive. He's a forgiving guy. All dogs go to heaven. All people are going to go to heaven. You know, it's all going to work out. God's grace. Um, you, can, you get the point. Um, now, I, I'm not trying to say that these explorations into our pastor things are bad. These are wonderful things to do. And in fact, they're essential things to do to understand your shadow side, to understand your tendencies, to understand your habits and your problems. These are wonderful things to do in the context of a counseling situation, not in the context of making excuses for your sin before God. Does that make sense? Now, let's look at verse 16, because God sees through all of this, of course. And this is actually my favorite verse in the whole story. One word. Samuel says, stop. (laughs) Stop it. <laughs> Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul says. So, so Samuel, he's not being the bad counselor from SNL. He's, but he's saying, he's rebuking a fool according to his folly. That's a proverb. Don't let a fool think he's wise in his own eyes, but rebuke him so that doesn't happen. And Samuel's just speaking up and saying, stop, stop, stop. I, 
no. <laughs> Let me tell you what God's told me. And he goes on in verse 17. All right. Samuel continued, although you once considered yourself unimportant, haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Now this is, this is important. This, this, this is building upon something that happened in Saul's past. When Samuel anointed Saul, Saul was saying, I'm not worthy. I'm from the littlest tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. And in that tribe, I'm from the littlest clan. I'm not worthy to be king. And Samuel said, no, God wants you to be king. So what Samuel's doing is he's reminding Saul of his past. And this is such a good thing to do with one another, to remind us of our past commitments to the Lord. Remember your baptism. Are you a Christian here today? Remember your baptism. You were stood up in front of a bunch of people. You went underwater and embarrassed yourself in front of a bunch of people saying, I'm dying. I'm dead now. I'm going to live for Christ. What about remembering our marriage vows? You stood up in front of all these public witnesses and you said, I do. You said, till death do us part. These important moments in our life where we have clarity from God that's crystal clear. We know what we want to do. We know what we want our life to be about. But then time goes by and trials go by and things get blurry and things get confusing and we start to drift. And a good friend will remind you of your past, remind you of the commitments that you have made. Now, I'm not talking just as a caveat about abuse situations or about extreme situations in a marriage. You realize that, right? I'm talking about the normal problems and the ups and downs and the real hard times that come. But reminding ourselves of our past vows, our past commitments. So at this point, Samuel continues on, verse 18 and 19, and he's going to start reminding Saul of God's clear commands, not just his past, where he's come from, but his present. And then sent you on a mission, God, he's talking about God, God sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? Samuel's not mincing words. He's not trying to win a friend. Well, he is trying to win a friend, but he's not trying to butter up a friend. See the difference? He's shooting straight. He's saying, God clearly said this. Don't say, oh, it depends on your interpretation. Oh, well, I understood God differently. Oh, well, this passage of the Bible is a little confusing. You could read it that way. You could do No, he's super clear. God told you to do this. Why did you not do it? And, and, and Saul is now in a position where I hope he's going to break, right? And he's going to humble himself before the Lord. But oh no, let's look at verse 20 and 21. But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took the sheep, the goats, and the cattle from the plunder. The best of what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So I spent a little time this week looking at this verse going, all right, what's, what is he adding? Like, what's the new excuse as the excuses build up? But what hit me very recently was this is actually nothing new. If you notice, every, he just repeated the narrative. And that's the powerful point. 
often when we're in this fever of self-justification, we're not listening. We're not listening to the pastors of our church. We're not listening to our best friends. We're not listening to our faithful spouses. We're in a fever of self-justification and we're just repeating a narrative over and over and over. And it's that narrative that vindicates us. And we realize that if the narrative's true, then I'm, then I'm vindicated. But that is the essence, that's the essence of this self-deception. Now, <clears throat> thankfully, the Lord and Samuel get the last word here. This is the pinnacle of the text. It switches from prose to poetry. And you get this beautiful section of poetry that's really deep, and I wish I could think about it for many more weeks and, you know, we could preach sermons on it. But let's just take a, an initial look at it. Verse 22 and 23. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. The first part of this is really interesting. He says, look, if you see things from God's perspective, it's actually worse than it is. Oh, no, actually, sorry. The first part of this says, <clears throat> first part of this says, God, what God wants from you, Christian, is a real relationship with you, where you hear his words, where you do what he says, because you love him. I used to have a lot of friends that were not Christian, and they would often, we'd, people get crazy, do stuff they regret, and then they go like, oh, you better go to church, or you better pray a little bit, you better help somebody this week to kind of make up for the bad stuff that you did, right? Because that's how we think as flawed humans. But God's saying, no, no, no. All those like little sacrifices, those religious things you can do, that's not the point. Like that's important. God, God gives you things to do, but the heart, the essence of true religion is loving and obeying God. That's the end of the matter in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. That's what's core in our loving of God. Not the externalism, not the doing a good thing to make up for a bad thing, not the just going to church or checking the boxes. And Samuel puts his finger right on that. And then the second thing he does, he takes it up a notch because Saul has been trying to minimize his sin. He's been trying to make it look very normal, very, you know, he's mostly done good. It's just a little bit of bad. But Samuel actually maximizes it. He does the opposite. He says, look, you think this is just like a little bit of, uh, you know, rebellion, a little bit of, of disobedience. This is divination. What you're doing is equivalent to creating your own religion. You're leaving the one true God. You're turning to divinate. You're turning to other religions and seers and soothsayers and the occult. That's what you're doing when you don't listen to God. And then he goes on. He says, look, arrogance, this arrogant spirit, you creating a monument for yourself, you defending yourself when I'm telling you the opposite over and over and over, that's idolatry. That's not just a little human pride kicking in, a little masculine pride and ego. That's idolatry. You're making yourself God, and you're the one who calls the shots, and you're the one who defines good and evil now. And funny, because the way you define it, you're always innocent. You're always in the right. It's a super powerful poem. It's worthy of more reflection than that, but 
I just want to end with just a little word on just religion and secularism today. That, that I think this is a real pattern in our society for the past 100, 200 years, this, this shift from, hey, we're listening, we're obeying God, we're trying to please God, to, hey, whatever you want to do goes. What, everything is fine. All religions are great. All roads lead to Rome. You know, pick and choose what you want. Be wise. Take a little from Jesus, a little from Buddha, a little from uh, Islam, a little from the Quran, and, and we'll mix it together, and you do you. And, and what Samuel's saying is that is idolatry. That's you've become God, and you're mixing and creating your own religion, which you're serving. And funny, in your own religion, you're, you're fine. You're a good person. You're going to heaven. Everything's good. Of course it's that way, because you made it up. <laughs> but that, that's the secular, that's part of the secular vibe that, that we live in and swim in. I just want to be careful that, that we're not being sucked into that. So how do we move from that kind of self-deception to a place of clarity, a place of, of lucidity, where we recognize our sin, we embrace it, we own it. Let's look, just think through the text on a bit broader level and think through the tools that God's given us. I've got four tools for you. There's four tools that God gives us for pursuing uh, real freedom and real, uh, real clarity. First of all, it's God's community. Notice that the Father sends people to us to get our attention. Saul couldn't have done this on his own. He was stuck in his fever of self-justification. Samuel needed to go to him. And that's why we, that's what we can do with one another. Think of all the New Testament commands to love one another, speak truth to one another, speak the truth in love to one another, confess your sins to one another. We need each other. The idea of a blind spot is very real. We all have them. I can't see the truck coming, but someone else in the car can, and they can save my life. And that's what should be happening in the church here, helping each other escape from the dangerous paths that we're taking. The second tool besides community is the word. I forgot to say something. I got to say this. First Samuel, First Samuel 15. This is done in the context of loving community. This isn't in the text for today, but it's just before it and just after it. Look how much Samuel loves Saul. Word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king. This is God talking, for he has turned away from following me, has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. He is upset that God's going to change, turns back on Saul now. Samuel loves Saul. He is passionate for Saul. He's on his side. He's an advocate. And then after the story, verse 35, even to the day of his death, Samuel never saw Saul again. Samuel mourned for Saul. So imagine Samuel, not as a self-righteous dude, but a, a, a guy with tears in his eyes, pleading, come back to the light, wake up, come to your senses. And that's how we speak truth to one another. Now, the second tool is God's word. Samuel spoke God's word, didn't he? He communicated God's message to King Saul. Look at what Hebrews 4 says. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The human heart is really twisted. It's, as Jeremiah says, it is twisted, it is corrupt beyond comprehension. Who can understand it? 
But there is a tool, it's God's word, that is sharp enough to penetrate, to make the most nuanced distinctions, to penetrate all the defenses and get past the armor we wear, and to cut us to the core. And we need that exposure from his word. It's better than any personality test, better than any self-awareness tool out there. God's word, reading his word, talking about his word, community talking about his word, it will, it's like a mirror, right? As James says, and it's going to show us who we are. It's going to show us how to change. Number three, God's spirit. Now, we don't see this clearly in the text today, but I have to add this in because in conjunction with God's word, is always God's spirit. Because just like John Wayne Gacy You can hear the conviction that you're guilty. You can know intellectually everything you've done and feel absolutely zero sorrow on the inside. Does that make sense? The word without the spirit bringing it home to your heart, it's just flat. And we all are psychopaths in one way or another. All right? We all have areas in our life where we're completely psycho. We know we do something, but we just don't care. We just, it doesn't bother us. It doesn't even shame us. It doesn't make us good. We just don't care. And that's where the Spirit needs to do his work. Look what the Spirit's role is. When Jesus leaves, he says, when Jesus is talking, he says, when he comes, he will convict the world. Convict, that's that, that's that word. He will convict. It will make it, he'll drive it home to the heart about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those are the three things we avoid. Oh, I'm not that bad of a person. No, you are. Oh, this isn't a big deal. Yes, it is. This is sin. This is horrible about righteousness. I'm a good person. No, you're not. (laughs) No, I'm really righteous. No, you're not. Judgment. Oh, everybody's going to heaven. It's all fine. It'll all work out in the end. No, it won't. (laughs) There's judgment. Those things, though, they're spiritual truths that are apprehended spiritually as the Holy Spirit does his work through the Word of God. That's the third thing. And then the fourth thing is the lawyer, the lawyer of Jesus Christ. Now, this hit me afresh this week. We were at this conference. We were singing a song that said, I need you, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. And I was thinking about that in this text, and I was like, that's it. That's the bombshell that changes the whole equation. Satan, we we saw the picture in the beginning. Satan is like that evil lawyer that's trying to convince us that we're good. But the problem with Satan, the second he convinces us we're good and we hide, on judgment day, Satan turns on us and he will accuse us before the throne of God. It's very clear in scripture. He will be the accuser. So you think you got a good lawyer, but in in the courtroom at the final moment, he will stand up and accuse the heck out of you before the righteous judge and you will be sent to hell. That's his desire. That's why he's doing it. Jesus is just the opposite. God sends Jesus to be your true lawyer, the lawyer you really need. The thing is, though, he knows everything you've done. He knows the law books perfectly. But he comes. He tells you your conviction. But then he says, I'll take the punishment. I know the judge. I know how this works. Justice must be served. Can you imagine a lawyer that would do that? Mm. A defense lawyer that loves you that much that he will not only understand everything you did wrong, but then he'll take the punishment in the courtroom? It's mind-blowing. And once you realize how much you're loved, when you let that sink in, that you are loved like crazy by Jesus, and that he will never turn on you on Judgment Day, never. He's going to defend you before the throne of God. Now and on Judgment Day, he's on your side. Even though he knows everything you've done, it's a crazy thing about Christianity. 
Every other world religion saying, do good, do good, do better, do better, do better, do this, do that, and you might be accepted. Every religion, except Jesus, who says, no, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, but I'll die for you, and I'll defend you, and you're safe with me. Look at this final verse from 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. That's the lawyer part. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. That's who you need. That will be the game changer in your life that will free you from living in darkness, that will free you from justifying everything you do, from hiding, from being a hypocrite, from all that stuff. That's who you need. Just going to take a minute and pray for us now, and then we'll have a time of communion and reflection, led by Pastor Jamal. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.